Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Ebajemra, and I'm your host. It is uh, great to have you back with us if you've been here before, and if you're new, welcome. We're glad that you checked in with us. This is a place where we share biblical truth for everyday life. Our hope is that you grow in the knowledge of God and that you continue to stand strong in a world that is shaken. And so this summer, we are running a teaching series that I've put together called the Unshaken Series. It is an awesome teaching series and uh, one of the most popular teachings that I've done. It uh, focuses each week on a different Bible character, a man or woman that has stood strong in faith no matter the difficult circumstances they were in. I know that you're going to find hope and healing with each of the weeks that will cover a different episode. And so uh, if you want to know more about our ministry, check out livingwithpower.org. And by the way, when you land on our page, check out our speaking page. And if you are looking for a person to come and teach uh, or lead a conference at your church or uh, group gathering, then please reach out. We'd love to meet you in person. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to today's teaching in the Unshaken series. Today's teaching is uh, number four in our series called Unshaken, Strong in Faith No Matter What. And I've titled this teaching, When I'm Paralyzed by Fear. And many of you know that we have just survived sort of this high intensity, high fear uh, season with the coronavirus. And, and for many of us, the season might be st- settling down a little in terms of anxiety about coronavirus. But now the anxiety is about many other things that some of you might already be struggling with fear even before the coronavirus. And so how does that fit into our Christian walk? Does God have anything to say about it? And if he does what and uh, how do we get out of it? And lucky for us, or by God's divine providence, many in scripture struggled with fear, and none more than Jacob, one of the great forefathers, the patriarchs of the faith. So remember, we talk about God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it is that God that we're going to encounter today through the life of Jacob. And so I've called this teaching, uh, Lesson 4, Genesis 32, When I'm Paralyzed by Fear. How to Remain Unshaken When You're Paralyzed by Fear. And I'll pick up the reading in the wrestling match between Jacob and God. And we're going to read a few verses. And I'm going to give you a little context and go over three application points as I, as I usually do. But I want to kind of unpack that story a little bit. Maybe you know a little bit about Jacob, maybe you know a lot, but you're going to find out a lot here in the next few minutes. So Genesis 32, I'm going to start picking up the reading in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. It says, uh, the same night, and I'll explain in a minute what same night, the same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob And if you underline in your Bible, underline this. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. The man said that to Jacob. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? Jacob answered, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Famous passage of scripture. Jacob is in a night of darkness in his life. And he encounters the living God. And it is a life-changing encounter in which God changes the name of Jacob and 
re sort of gets him on the path that he's supposed to be on. Jacob is already walking towards the way that God has for him, but he's confused by what's happening. And so let me give you a little background. Remember that Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had two boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the first of the twins to be born. Jacob was the second. And in the womb of Rebekah, they wrestled the two boys when they were going to be born. And God at the time spoke to Rebecca and said, the younger is going to be the ruler over the older. The older is going to serve the younger. And it was anathema. It was against everything that they believed in that age. So they weren't so, they were like, well, what? And he goes, yeah, this is how it's going to be. And sort of a, a symbolic about how the second born, the new life, the second life is, is, is the importance of that, of course, spiritually speaking. But they didn't know a whole lot at the time. And so the two boys were born and Esau was hairy and a rough guy. And Jacob was sort of the chef and the gentler of the two. And, and they had some conflict, as many siblings do. And that conflict was over little things. In fact, one day Esau was hungry and he came back from, from uh, hunting and all that uh, tough guys do. And, and he had... Um, uh, was so hungry that he saw Jacob cooking and he asked Jacob to give him some stew. And Jacob was known, his name was, the meaning of the word Jacob is deceiver. And so Jacob uh, deceived his brother in a sense, not really, he actually didn't deceive him at that point, but he tricked him. He says, well, I'll give you a bowl of soup, but you got to give me your birthright. And Esau um, despises, in Hebrews 12, we're told that he despises the birthright uh, so much that he says, fine, you can have the birthright, just give me soup. And if you know me, you know that I might do that for ice cream, but not for a bowl of soup. But uh, uh, Esau missed the point of the birthright. But really, again, by God's providence, Jacob was living into God's will, even though the means of it were uh, interesting. Uh, that uh, was sort of uh, interesting enough. But you go from there to find out more about Jacob. You find out the, the kind of the big chapter that makes you go, wow, was uh, that chapter where Jacob tricks his dad into thinking that he's Esau. So his mother, Rebecca, finds out that, that Isaac wants to bless his oldest son, Esau. And again, uh, she goes to Jacob and says, listen, here's what your dad's gonna do. And she sets him up and she puts some hair because he wasn't hairy. She puts hair on his arm and she tells him to go change his voice. And they trick the father into getting not just now the birthright, but the blessing. And Jacob lies his way to get the blessing, even though God had already promised the blessing to him. And and why am I telling you guys this right now? Because I think sometimes we think of people in the Bible who God has used greatly as some kind of spiritual superpower. And you're going to see that it is not because of Jacob's strength, but despite Jacob's weakness, that God ends up using him and choosing him and loving him and how much encouragement we can find from that. In fact, Jacob is one of my favorite scriptural examples because he is far from perfect. In fact, in the beginning, three or four chapters about his life, you hear nothing but the mess that he's made. And if you, and uh, like me, have had a mess in your life, uh, or maybe more than one, maybe you're living in a mess right now, it's easy to uh, condemn yourself and feel so bad about yourself. And while God wants to change us and bring us to a place of repentance, it is so encouraging to hear that God, how he will deal with Jacob, who he has chosen to be uh, the one who would carry the covenant uh, to eventually bring through the Messiah. And so that's Jacob. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And so, so once his brother Esau finds out that he tricks the father, so the father's dying, uh, Jacob acts like he is Esau, gets the blessing. Uh, and so now Esau comes back from hunting, finds out what happened, and he is angry. And if you have um, siblings in your home, and if you grew up with siblings, or if you have two boys, you understand some of the tension that can be. But this tension was like on steroids. Esau threatens to kill 
Jacob, so much so that the mother, Rebecca, says to Jacob, remember he was her favorite, uh, she says to him, you need to get away. In fact, both the parents said, you need to get away. Esau really means it. He's going to kill you, so you need to get away. And so uh, Jacob indeed uh, gets away, and they send him back uh, to the land where Rebekah was from, a part of Haran, and they send him to her brother, Laban. And Laban was an interesting fellow. He was a, a, a bigger crook than Jacob was, but they didn't know it at the time. And so now Jacob goes, and that night when he first leaves, that very first night, he left. And by the way, why did he leave? Because, simply because he was afraid. All right? This is critical because you're going to see that this young man was afraid of his brother. And out of fear, he leaves. Of course, again, by the blessing of his parents, but he leaves and there's this ominous fear in his life. And I find often in our lives, many of the things that we fear don't just pop up in a day. They've been there our whole life. They just exacerbate so often. And so we're going to see this pattern of fear for Jacob. And as we look at that, I want you also to consider in your life, where is it that you are most afraid? What is it that you're most afraid from? And I find often that the things that we fear the most are things that have stuck with us through our life. And so Jacob goes and that first night of his leaving home, he, um, he leaves. Uh, this is just backtracking a bit to Genesis 28. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So he puts a stone as a pillow, which doesn't sound very comfortable, but that's what he does. And he sleeps. In the middle of the night, God gives him a dream. And this dream, and if you know the Bible, you know that the Old Testament dreams were very, very significant. And in that dream, God puts a ladder down. And it's a picture of salvation, by the way, where he puts the ladder down and angels are going up and down. And later in the Bible, you understand the meaning of the dream. And, and Jacob wakes up. And the meaning of the dream is that God will save Jacob. And it's sort of a promise. And Jacob wakes up in verse 16. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid, now this is a holy fear, and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Remember Bethel, the house of God. That's the same name that Abraham used as a place of offering. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, what's happening here for Jacob is very important because this is sort of the beginning of his maturing faith. So far, he is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, but he has not experienced God for himself. This is the first encounter that we see of Abraham with the Lord. And there's an awakening that happens where he wakes up and says, now, I don't know what's happening, but God is here. And he wakes up to that. He still has very little knowledge of God, but he's no longer relying on Rebecca or on Isaac. He's no longer in that zone. And he sees that God is at work in his life. Look, not because of how good he was, we see nothing but a person who's tricked his brother twice now, who's tricked the dad, who's running away. And in that place, God meets him in the middle of the night. All right, this is critical. And so Jacob has this fear of his uh, brother and he's now going and he sees God working. He says, if God is going to be faithful for me, then I'm going to really live. So it's sort of a commitment of saying, all right, all right, Lord, we're going to do this. And, uh, and then he goes, and if you know the story, and again, just to kind of bring you up to speed, he falls in love with a woman named Rachel, and, uh, and uh, Laban is the father of Rachel. And so uh, this is perfect in every way, except that Laban is a bigger crook than Jacob. And rather than giving him Rachel, he tricks him and gives him Leah, the sister, who wasn't as attractive and 
and who Jacob was not in love with. And Jacob ends up negotiating this marriage and he ends up with two wives, Leah and Rachel. And Rachel was the one he loved and Leah he did not. And yet Leah was the one who had kids. She had 10 kids. Rachel would go on to have two. Joseph and then of course Benjamin later on, not where we're reading right now. Benjamin's not born yet, but she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So to say that, that, that Jacob has lived through some difficulties after that initial mess that he's made is, is to say the least. And I think it's important to understand that because I think sometimes we think that just because somebody is chosen by God, anointed by God, God has a plan for their life and a purpose for their life that everything should magically be okay. But it doesn't always work this way. And so we see Jacob, first of all, Jacob has his own sin that he needs to be transformed from. He needs to mature in the faith. He needs to understand who God is. And sometimes that comes at a price. And so Jacob spends 20 years serving Laban, his uncle. Laban turns out to be um, not the nicest father-in-law slash uncle and tricks him and messes with him. And, and despite that, God blesses Jacob and Jacob's business grows and he has a lot of uh, lambs and ewes and whatever it is that they have there. And, uh, and then, in, uh, then there's some trouble, conflict that can happen in families. So that in, Gen in Genesis 31, and we're getting a lot of Old Testament history here, but I think this is important to set the stage of, to where we're going. Uh, Jacob heard uh, in chapter 31 of Genesis, uh, in those 20 years of being in Haran, Jacob's mind is not settled in Haran. He wants to go back home. He understands God's plan for his life. He knows where he's going to end up. He wants to go back to his mother and father, but he's anxious and he doesn't know when. And so he's waiting to hear from God. And, and so he starts to lean that way as Laban becomes more and more difficult in his life. And, and incidentally, haven't you found out in your life that sometimes the very things in our life that are difficult, so he's living with Laban, Laban becomes a problem to him. Instead of looking at that as an end point, it really is the tool that God uses to redirect Jacob back home. We're going to see in a second. Sometimes we look at the difficulties in our life and we think that's the end all. And instead, God uses those difficulties to propel us into the new area of ministry or calling or life purpose that we're in. Some of you are living that right now. You're going through a difficult circumstance and you think, why would God allow this? It is this very difficulty that might propel you into your new season of, of ministry. That has happened regularly in my life where the things that I uh, get confused about and stumble over and why is this person treating me so bad? That ends up being what pushes you out of Egypt or, or the Red Sea towards the land of promise. And that is an awesome thing. So, so be attentive when you're going through difficulties. Don't always be like, God, why is this happening to me? Instead, ask, God, what is it that you're trying to do in this place? And so Genesis 31, and we're getting close to the story where we're picking up today. It says, Jacob heard the sons of Laban saying, Jacob has taken all that our fathers and from what our fathers, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord, and this is critical, Genesis 31, verse two, then the Lord, or verse three, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Same God who showed up to him in, a, in the dream, same God who's been blessing him, same God who's given him now 11 kids, says to him, it's time, Jacob, you need to go back. How did Jacob receive this? Well, he gets his wives, he tells them, here's what's happening, and they agree. And so he gathers all that he has, he gathers the wives, the kids, and in Genesis 31, we're not going to read it, he starts the trek, and as soon as he starts, who gets mad? Much like Pharaoh in Exodus one day, when the people of Israel leave Egypt, it doesn't take two steps for them to leave. That, that, that Pharaoh's like, wait, what just happened? And he gets angry and comes after them. Here again, Jacob leaves this place of training, this sort of, you know, 
symbolic prison. And, and, and as soon as he leaves, who comes after him but Laban? And so there's an entire encounter where here's God Almighty who calls Jacob out of Haran back to Canaan. And rather than, you know, sometimes we think, well, if God's calling me to do someplace, there's going to be no problems, right? I'm going to just face it and move through. It's going to be easy. But instead, not a few days into his departure, his father-in-law comes after him. And he's after him, not for good, but for evil. And so there's an entire story of that and how Jacob deals with that. And so it's not a smooth trip so far. Now we land in chapter 32. And in chapter 32, it says, Jacob, now they make peace. By God's grace, there's peace between Jacob and Laban. And now the family's on their way. But listen, listen, why did I tell you all this? Why did we start with the twins in the womb? Because we're about to hit on the biggest fear in the heart of Jacob, a fear that started back in his young adult years and has not left him. It says, Jacob went on his way, and is Genesis 32, verse 1, if you're reading, he went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. Jacob is no dummy. He knows who's mad at him. And it says, the country of Edom instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Jacob has changed in the years that he's been gone, about 20 years. Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob, remember guys, our theme for the teaching, unshaken when I'm paralyzed by fear. It says now in verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now Jacob has one of those like, please God save me. Like I used to pray that before medical school tests. I'd be like, I got a calculus test tomorrow or neuroanatomy or whatever. God, I need an A. This is the sort of prayer, but it's a thought out prayer much deeper than what I might have prayed. But it shows you that he has relationship with God, but he is paralyzed by fear. Here's what he prays. He says in verse nine, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, he reminds God, God, this is what you promised. Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. You ever pray and you're like confused? You're like, God, I thought you were for me. I'm, I'm, in, I'm about to face my brother who hates me for 20 years. He's been building up his hatred. He wanted to kill me before. You sent me back home and now you want to kill me. As he says, God, you're the one who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob has a problem. He knows God and he believes-ish God. Isn't that where so many of us live? We believes-ish, sort of, like believe-ish. We believe here, but we don't get it here. You ever catch yourself in that place? You pray, you say the words. You say, how do you know that he wasn't fully sold on the prayer yet? It says, verse 13, he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. So he's prayed, but he's still working. He knows that. He knows how to work something. 
He spent his years knowing how to manipulate and work, and he's still like, okay, God, I know I prayed, I know I sort of asked you, but, but he's still trying to run this show. And he says, uh, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me. Put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first one, Esau, my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And where are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him. You ever pray and you sort of believe God, but then you just kill yourself to try to protect yourself as if you never prayed? I do that all the time. I ask God for something, and yet in the very same breath, I go and I plan A, B, C, D, E in case God doesn't show up or maybe just... I don't know. Say, so what did he do? Well, he thought, so the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night, he arose, took his two wives, were back to that place where we started, his 11 children. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone in his fear. And he's about to meet almighty God. Here's the first point. I know I've taken some time to present you this story because I think the story says it all. We're just trying to interpret what this means to us. Here's the first. Fear unchecked will always lead to a crisis of faith. Fear unchecked will always lead to a crisis of faith. It is not if a crisis of faith will happen, but when it will happen, when you have fear in your life that remains unchecked. From the moment that Jacob, in fact, you could backtrack from when he was growing up and he gives the soup to the guy. Even you can say when he tricked his father and knew that Esau was after him for all these years, Jacob has one fear and it is that his brother's gonna find him and kill him. And so for year after year after year, you see that when pick up the reading in chapter 32, the very same fear that drove him away from home is the very same fear that is with him coming back home. And listen to me, God is not surprised by that fear. It is not a surprise to God when you reach a crisis of faith rooted in fear. In fact, God is meeting him. God heard his prayers. God first met him at the place where he put his head on the rock and showed him the dream and committed to him and covenanted to him. Now, years later, God is still waiting for him. The same God who told them to go back home is not surprised that Esau is waiting, is not surprised that Jacob is freaking out, is certainly not surprised on that night that Jacob would show up alone at night and the only place where you can wrestle with God over your areas of fear are alone and often in the middle of the night. So it is very symbolic here that God shows up in that dark night, in the height or depth of Jacob's fear. And so God is not surprised when we reach that crisis of faith. And why do I say it's a crisis of faith? Because the very things we fear, what is fear but, but an emotion rooted in a disbelief that God will show up for us. It is a disbelief in the goodness of God. Uh, fear is, is in essence believing that God is not going to be faithful. It is counting against God's goodness. And that is what drives us uh, to a place of being shaken. In fact, what drives your fear? Well, it is the very thing that disrupts your comfort. Think long and hard. What was it that Jacob feared? And I want you as you think about that, to think about your fears. I find that when you name your fear and we get to the heart of the fear, you can understand what's happening in your heart. Jacob was afraid of what? I think it was simple. He was afraid he was going to die. 
He was afraid he was going to lose everything that he'd accumulated. And so uh, it was a disruption of his comfort. And isn't that the truth about most of our fears? If you're single, you fear you're not going to get married. That is a disruption of the dream and the comfort of a life that you thought you might have. If you've lost your jobs, it is a disruption of life as you know it today. And it is counting out the faithfulness of God. And so God is not surprised when you lead. That leads you off in that very fear. The disruption of comfort leads you to a crisis of faith of saying, God, do I even believe that you're good? How did you get me to this place? How did you promise me back at the, at, at the place of the dream that you would be faithful to me? And how did you send me out of Laban's home to, to, home, to my home? And, and then as soon as I get there, you send me, not just Laban comes after me, but now my very brother, who is uh, uh, the one who I've tried to hide from and escape for 20 years is coming after me. God, are you even in this? And whenever you start asking these questions, something will happen. And often it is a crisis of faith. And while we might think that that is the worst thing that can happen to us, I believe that it is sometimes the best thing that can happen to us, particularly if we engage in conversing and wrestling with God. We look at a wrestling match with God as the worst thing that can happen, but often it is the biggest grace that can happen in our life. So it is not a surprise to God when you have a crisis of faith. He's waiting for you in the middle of the night. He's waiting to draw you close through it. And it's certainly not the end of your story if you find yourself right now in a crisis of faith due to the fear that is unchecked in your life. And so here's a second big idea. Fear understood reveals what it is that you love most in your life. What you fear usually will get you to the root of what you love. Okay, you don't, you're not afraid of things that don't matter to you. I'm not afraid of my motorcycle getting destroyed because I don't have a motorcycle, right? So it doesn't matter. But, but what I fear, I think, I was thinking about the teaching tonight. I've had a busy week and I was thinking, God, am I ready enough? And then I was thinking about the writing project and I've been focused this week on writing and the fears that are accumulated in my heart over the potential of a failure, the potential of not delivering, the potential of not saying, well, the potential of not living up my calling. And there's a huge fear in my life. You might not fear that. That is not something you love. See, we all... Look at our fears to study what is it that you love the most in your life. At the heart of your fear is the root of your desires. What is it that you fear today? At the heart of your fear is what your problem really is. And at the heart of your fear is a pattern that must be broken. What I love about the Lord is that he is committed to breaking that pattern. It is not a surprise to God that that Jacob is called out of Haran to go back home. It is not a surprise to God that Esau is waiting to meet uh, Jacob. It is not a surprise to God what is going to happen in the story. God is still in control. I always say that God is still in control in the midst of the crisis that we're facing right now. People say, how is he still in control? In the same way that he's in control here. He sees the disaster coming. He's already planned for the disaster. And in it is a commitment to God, of God to us to free us of our fears. How does he do that? Well, we're going to get to the third point and the biggest point of this teaching. Fear overcome will only be born out of brokenness. I want to talk a little bit about this. So Jacob is left alone and he's wrestling with God and he doesn't know it's God at that point, but he figures out pretty quickly and they're wrestling and, and he's not winning. Jacob is not winning. And there's a point of brokenness. And that brokenness is in this situation. We see that God touches the hip of Jacob and he can't hang on anymore. He falls. He's dislocated and he hangs on to God and, and God's like, let go. And Jacob's heart is revealed, the real bottom desire of his heart is, I won't let go unless you bless me. God is pleased with this surrender, this, I can't even walk, God, but I need you. 
And at some point in this conversation, Jacob clues into it. And so now God says to Jacob, and this is a theophany here that's happening where God appears. There's a few times in the Old Testament where we see this. And, and now God says, what's your name? And Jacob very honestly says his name. And remember the word Jacob means deceiver. And, and in this, is, if you read commentaries about this, is an acknowledgement of Jacob of who he is. And so he says to God, I know what I am. I am a deceiver. And God in his goodness and his grace, now he sees this man who's broken. He can't even walk at this point. He's hanging on to God. And, and I believe with all my heart that God is hanging on to him. And God says, I'm going to change your name. No longer Jacob, but he calls him Israel. Of course, we know that this is uh, the man that God has chosen to be the father of the patriarchs. And to this day, when we think about God of Abraham and of Isaac, and then we talk about Jacob, this mess of a man who is broiled in fear, who has made a mess of things. He's got two wives because he himself gets stuck with a deceiver. He's got a brother who hates him. He, you can't get any worse than, than the story of Jacob. And yet here he sees God's grace and it comes when he lets go. He's broken. We think of brokenness as, as, as a bad thing in this world. We think of it as a weakness. I was just looking up some, some, some words for brokenness and it is uh, I found in one of the, the dictionaries, it is a desperation. Are you desperate for God tonight? It is a subduing. To be broken is to be subdued and humbled. Are you humbled by God in your fear? Or are you avoiding God at all costs? Are you trying to fix the situation? Are you like Jacob praying and then fixing but never getting to the point of letting go and utter weakness and defeat before God and saying, God, I'm done. I, I think of brokenness as sort of brokenness and surrender as brother and sister, They're like two sides of a coin. To surrender everything to God in our minds, sometimes we think of it as a sign of weakness. We think, well, if I surrender, I'm giving up everything. But surrender is not a giving up. It is a letting go to God Almighty. And that very letting go puts you in a place of brokenness where you're at the mercy of God. But now in your fear, you're no longer trying to do because you can't anymore. I was thinking a bit about brokenness. It is, it is the place where we'll find our breakthrough. Do you know why breakthrough is a word of feel like lately I've been thinking about breakthrough a lot. We all want breakthrough. We want breakthrough in our relational lives. We want breakthrough in our physical illnesses. And we want breakthrough uh, relationally, financially, spiritually. We constantly pray for breakthrough, some miraculous thing that happens. And we define breakthrough as a re resolution of the problem that we're facing. In my mind, I think of breakthrough as God answering my problem in the way that I usually want him to do it. And so for me, you could look at the story and think, well, breakthrough would be that, that God would fix the Esau problem. Maybe he'd trip on his way there. Maybe he'd get lost. We'd come up with a million scenarios. But that's not true breakthrough. See, we define breakthrough as a resolution of our problem. But God defines breakthrough as an awareness of his living presence in our life. The breakthrough for Jacob happens in that night, in that moment when he can't hold on anymore. And God is hanging on to him. And he can't let go. And he's broken. And in it, he's absolutely dependent on God. And that grace is the breakthrough for Jacob. In fact, Esau never leaves. He comes the next morning. We'll look at that in a minute. Esau comes, but what Jacob has not expected, what none of us could have anticipated is he has no animosity against Jacob. Somehow God had fixed the Esau problem in a way that Jacob could not have predicted. But the breakthrough came not by God telling Jacob that night, hey, Jacob. You don't need to worry about Esau. I already fixed it. No. Breakthrough happens 
when in a place of brokenness and surrender, Jacob's eyes are opened once again in the middle of the night to the presence of God, that awareness of God's presence is a turning point. Brokenness is the place where you can't hang on to God anymore, but you realize that he's got his hold on you. It is a place of blessing, and it is impossible to reach it without surrender. As you think about your life tonight, what is it that you need to surrender to God? It has to do with the thing that you fear the most. Maybe it's your family you need to surrender. Maybe it's your home you need to surrender. Maybe it's your dream, your book, your ministry. Maybe it's a relationship you want. What is it that you need to surrender? Your very fears are usually attached to that thing that you want the most, your desires, that thing that you love the most. And the place to encounter God is the place where you're willing to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. We are often looking for answers to our problems, but God is looking for transformation of our character. We are looking for a change in our circumstances, but God is trying to change our hearts. For Jacob, after that night, he never walked without a limp again. We're told that the sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket. And then he goes on and meets Esau, and, and then he builds an altar to God at the end of chapter 33. And he called it Eli Elohi Israel which means the God of Israel. It was a renewal of his faith, a declaration that he was a worshiper of God. Jacob's problems did not end on that night. If you know much about his story, you know that later on his sons would turn out to be crooks. They would treat their youngest Joseph before Benjamin so poorly they would sell him off as a slave. Joseph himself would suffer for years in a prison, wrongly accused and Jacob was told in those years that Joseph had died, so his life did not get easier. But throughout his life, you see a man who's grounded by God, who's directed by God, and who ultimately was used by God and fulfilled his purpose for God. Not because of his goodness, not because of Jacob's goodness and performance and perfection, but because Jacob was willing to give God his fears. And later on, he had to give another fear, the fear of losing Joseph and Benjamin. He had to wrestle through these things. Life with God is not if I land in a crisis of faith, but when I do. And when I do again, and in each point of wrestling is a deeper surrender of saying, okay, God, I didn't see that I was still hanging on to this place of comfort. I'm fearful because I want that more than I want you. And so the challenge to you is to identify what is it that you love the most? What is it that you're hanging on to the most? And tonight, the invitation, not that I give you, but that the Spirit of God whispers to you, this is between you and Him. Are you willing to give it over, not to give it up, but to let it go to the hands of the one who's got you, who's not going to let you go? Listen, I think about the goodness of God in my life and all those times in my life, even now, wrestling through some things, a uh, 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 searching of my heart, my desires, the purification of them. And every time I get to that place of brokenness and surrender, the other side of it is joy. I'm looking for joy, for peace, for victory. For the life that's unshaken, it happens in a place of brokenness. But it happens when you're serious with God and say, God, search me and know me. What is it that I'm afraid to lose? Will you help me say the words that Jesus said in that night in Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done.